What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. Today we conclude our series on the book of Revelation. We've been journeying through this book using Breaking the Code, originally by Bruce Metzger as our guide. Uh, Dr. Metzger was one of the main people responsible for the Bibles found in most United Methodist pews, the new revised standard version of the scriptures. He's known by many as the greatest New Testament scholar ever from North America, and I think he has helped steer us well in our journey through Revelation. It is so easy to get lost in this book, confused by its style and the images it presents, but I think we've discovered some great truths. Uh, We saw how Jesus is always with us, and we are called to be faithful to the very end. Even the dire situations described in this book are another extension of God's mercy, uh, offering another chance for all those who have rejected God. Even when the evil empire is destroyed, it is not simply to punish. It is the end of an empire that ruled by tyranny, enslaving and murdering good people without cause. We are to endure this difficult time, experiencing hardships with the hope in mind that one day, one day, God will make things right. Well, now we get to hear about that great day. After the empire falls, there will be rejoicing in heaven. Adana is going to read for us about a final judgment. This time, the judgment is not for correction or for a little while, but for all of eternity. Let's hear about the final victory of God and the city of God come down out of heaven. This is the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 11 through 21, verse 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then I saw a great white throne and the one who sat on it. The earth and the heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Also, another book was opened, the Book of Life. And the dead were judged according to their works as recording in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, Death gave Hades up of the dead that were in them, and all were judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, and anyone whose name not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. And from Isaiah 65, verses 17 and 18, For I am about to create new heavens, and a new earth, the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice 
in what I am creating, for I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts to what you have for us today. Make all things new in our lives, even the things we hold on to tightly that aren't good for us. Now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I bought a new car recently, and I'm still trying to get over how different it is from my last car. It's a a heavier car, but also the brakes are way more sensitive. Every time I get in, I feel like I'm learning to drive for the first time all over again. Uh, But it also has a nice dashboard touch screen. I've never had one of those before. And a backup camera. For the first time in my life, I am no longer running over my children's toys as I back up out of the garage. It's really an improvement for everyone. But I'm still getting over my last car. It was my first new car. It was quick and nimble, just the way that I like it. And I had it for so long, 13 years with one car, longer than my marriage to Emily so far. Uh, But this new car feels fancy. Leather seats with heaters in them for the winter. There's not a scratch on it where my last one had all the dings on it from when our children were little. Uh, Now I'm thinking about how I can protect this one better. I already bought those little liners for the shelves in the garage so when my boys open the doors, They don't add any scratches to it. I want to rearrange the whole garage just so the car stays in perfect condition. That often happens when we buy something new, doesn't it? We not only replace the things that need to change, but we start noticing other things that seem out of place. You buy a new shirt and suddenly you're getting a new haircut and new shoes. You change one little thing and everything else is now wrong. That happened to me in our guest bathroom a couple of years ago. Uh, The wallpaper was truly terrible. I couldn't stand it, so I borrowed my brother's steamer to get rid of it. I pulled off the wallpaper, and then I'm patching the holes. I'm putting on a new coat of paint. No big deal, but then I'm replacing the toilet paper holder and the trash can because that didn't go anymore. Then I'm redoing the flooring and uh, replacing the sink and installing new shelves. It was like I couldn't help myself. A fresh coat of paint led to a whole new bathroom. There's actually a a name for this effect. It comes from a French philosopher, and it's called the Diderot effect. Uh, The story goes that this philosopher, though being very famous in his day, was terribly poor. His daughter was going to get married, but he had no money for the dowry. Catherine the Great of Russia heard about it, so she bought an entire volume of books from him and uh, for about $50,000. And so for the first time in his life, he had a lot of money. He decided to buy a new scarlet robe, which he loved, but immediately he noticed that it didn't go with the rest of his items. So he bought new clothes, then a new rug, then a new kitchen table, and some sculptures, and a leather chair. Uh, Diderot famously wrote that one new possession can create a spiral of consumption, which leads to acquiring more new things. As a result, we end up buying things that our previous selves never needed to feel happy or fulfilled. 
Now, I'm sure that our Christian faith means we work against this bent toward overconsumption. We need to put healthy limits to how much we spend, and even more importantly, prioritize people over material things. We work to help the poor and needy before we replace items that work perfectly fine as they are. But I'm also curious if there is a way we can benefit from the Diderot effect. Can new things actually make us more spiritual? In this last portion of the Revelation, we are now at the point in the story where things on earth change radically. Good finally triumphs over evil as God judges the dead and throws death and Hades into the lake of fire. Now, this all comes just after a thousand-year reign where the devil is locked up in a bottomless pit. Those who were martyred come to life and rule with Jesus during this time. But this all raises a few questions like, why is the devil only locked up for a thousand years? Why not forever? And where is everybody else while the martyrs are reigning with the Lord? People have all kinds of theories about these few short verses in the Bible. Some theories have become so popular, people don't even know that other interpretations of these passages even exist. Uh, some believe things are going to get really bad here on earth. And then Jesus will come back and rapture us up into heaven for a thousand years. That's called dispensational premillennialism. Pretty fancy term there. Uh, others think Christians will stay on earth as the kingdom of God is built up over a thousand years. Then Jesus will appear on earth after things have gotten really good here on earth. That's called postmillennialism. It's probably not a surprise that most people are more pessimistic, so that first view where things get really bad before Jesus shows up is a far more popular view here in the U.S. A third view, though, is amillennialism, where this thousand years in the book of Revelation is really just symbolic. Most people actually believe something closer to this, uh, saying there is no way we can know how things ultimately will turn out, even as we read the Bible and try and understand it. It's not meant as a description of a future reality, but more like a dream and the inevitable consequences of certain actions. Myself, I always tell people I am a pan-millennialist. In the end, it's all going to pan out, so let's not get too worked up over it. Instead, I think we would do better to focus on something that seems really unfair in the Bible, something that makes people out there question how good God really could be if this is true. In the passage we read, we are told that there is a judgment and that the good people who believe in Jesus go into heaven well, the bad people are thrown into the lake of fire. We assume that means people are tortured forever in hell. So people ask, how good and loving can God be if he tortures literally billions of people for eternity? I think that's a great question, and one that I've struggled with myself for many years. One thing that I think is worth considering is the exact words of the Bible. It says, those who do not have their name written in the book of life are thrown into the lake of fire. If you were listening closely to the earlier scripture, you would have already heard that Hades, or hell itself, was thrown into the lake of fire. 
Now the people who are judged by God are thrown in there too. What do you make of hell being thrown into the lake of fire? Some scholars say what is actually being described here is the end of hell itself or any kind of punishment. What may happen at the end is the annihilation of everything outside of God and God's people. Essentially, if you don't choose to follow God, then you simply cease to exist. I certainly don't have any answers here, but the idea that sticks with me is this. What greater punishment is there than to miss out for eternity on the presence of God? So annihilation, to me, is the worst thing someone could experience. But also, it's the most loving thing God could do for someone who does not want to be with God. We know God loves everyone. God wants the best for all of us. But if we resist God, I don't think he's going to make us go to heaven. Ever try and make someone dance? You turn on the music and try and get them to move with you? If you can convince them, you can definitely have a good time. But if they refuse, it can get pretty awkward. If we refuse to dance with God, I don't think he forces us or punishes us. We have a choice, even to the very end. And I think God honors the choice we make, even if it's ultimately bad for us. When I was on vacation, I visited a different church with my family. We heard the story of a man who was gravely ill. His wife was by his bedside and on the edge of death. He whispers to his wife, you have been with me through all the bad times. When I got fired, you were there to support me. When my business failed, you were there. When we lost the house, you stayed with me. When my health started failing, you were still by my bedside. You know what? What, dear? She asked, filled with warm and tender feelings toward her husband. He says, I think you're bad luck. Now, <laughs> now we are entitled to our thoughts. You like that one pretty good, huh? All right, all right. We are entitled to our thoughts, even if they are ridiculous thoughts, right? But what I love in the scriptures is how all these thoughts on the trouble and worry and suffering, all of it gives way to God bringing heaven down to earth. Notice that it's not that people on earth go up to heaven. It's that heaven comes down here. In a very real way, the writer is reminding us that heaven isn't about some far-off thing. We don't have to sit around and wait for it. No, he says heaven really does start now. That's, that's what's in this idea in the scriptures. I know some of the ladies here at the church did a Bible study a couple of years ago, even though there was a pandemic, and they were studying and encouraging each other on this exact point. As bad as things might be around you, you really can experience a piece of heaven right here on earth. I feel it when I'm with my wife and we are delighting in our children as they grow up. I feel it when I've helped someone who is struggling with the death of a loved one. I felt it when somebody from the church told me, last week, Brian, you have the toughest job in the world. Nothing is ever good enough, and you are involved in everything. Just acknowledging 
how tough someone's journey can be can go a long way. Some of you feel heaven right now when you worship with us. That pipe organ gets you feeling the spirit or the beautiful piano and singing transports you to another world. When you eat and drink with friends or relax on that summer vacation, these are life-giving moments. And when we work together for the good of the church and the good of this world, we can have more and more of heaven here on earth. I think what Jesus is actually calling for is not a rigid demand for perfection of everyone everywhere, but for the dero effect of the soul. If we can have one thing made new in our lives, if we can have one single moment of transformation, a single touch of heaven here on earth, it could be enough to help us start noticing all those other things that are out of place. If I really experience heaven and I get hungry for it, I'm going to try and get more of that. I'm going to switch around other parts of my life so that I'm having a touch of that bliss all the time. I'm going to start working toward helping others to have more and more of that. I won't have to buy new material possessions to feel good. I'm going to be experiencing heaven every time I'm fully engaged in loving God and giving myself away for the benefit of others as I love them as fully as I love myself. That's heaven. That's the start of the vision John shares with us. And the vision becomes total perfection as the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. The whole city is made of gold. Not the streets, not just the streets. The city itself is gold. This thing that is rare and valuable on earth is as common as dirt in heaven. The city's gates are made of pearl. That doesn't mean there are little pearls glued to the gate. The pearl itself is so large that a, a, a doorway has to be cut through it so you can get in and out of the city. And the whole city is shaped like a cube, just like the Ark of the Covenant, the seat of God that was once in the temple of Jerusalem. But God isn't seated above the Ark. He isn't contained in the Holy of Holies. There is no temple, because now God's presence is everywhere. The light of God shines on everyone. This is a beautiful vision, not just of how things could be, but of how they really will be. And we can experience this today, right now, when we allow God to do a new thing in us. When God makes one thing new in us, we are on our way to all things being made new. That's the glorious vision we look to. So let's end with this. Uh, his Italian mother named him after the gospel writer Mark in the hopes that he too would tell the gospel truth. But 13th century Europeans found it impossible to believe Mark's tales of faraway islands and lands. He claimed that when he was only 17, he took an epic journey lasting a quarter of a century, taking him across the steppes of Russia, the rugged mountains of Afghanistan, the wastelands of Persia, and over the mountains of the Himalayas. He was the first European to enter China. Somehow became, he became a favorite of the most powerful ruler on planet Earth, the Kublai Khan. Mark saw cities that made European capitals look like roadside villages, the palace 
dwarfed the largest castles and cathedrals in Europe. It was so massive that its banquet room alone could seat 6,000 diners at one time, each eating on a plate of solid gold. Mark saw the world's first paper money and marveled at the explosive power of gunpowder. It would be the 18th century before Europe would manufacture as much steel as China was producing in the year 1267. He became the first Italian to taste that Chinese culinary invention, pasta, and as an officer of the Khan's court, he traveled to places no European would see for another 500 years. After serving Kublai Khan for 17 years, Mark began his journey home to Venice, loaded down with gold, silk, and spices. When he arrived home, people dismissed his stories of a mythical place called China. His family priest rebuked him for spinning lies. At his deathbed, his family, friends, and priests begged him to recant his fantastic tales. But setting his jaw and gasping for breath, Mark spoke his final words, I have not told even half of what I saw. Though 13th century Europeans rejected his stories as the tales of a liar or lunatic, history has proven the truthfulness behind the book he wrote about his adventures, The Travels of Marco Polo. Let his story be a reminder to you of our journey together. We have heard of God's love, of a call to faithfully serve and follow Jesus, of the mercy that is offered to every one of us, even as God brings justice to this world. We haven't heard even half of what the city of God here on earth will be like. But may you be inspired by every touch of heaven you experience right now, as well as in the future. Like Marco Polo, be faithful to the vision of all that God has for us, despite our detractors. Be inspired by a vision of heaven that makes us love and care for others more. May you be a faithful servant of Christ, working for the good of the kingdom from this day forward. Amen? Amen. For everything happening at Grace, check out our website at gumc.org.